MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. Tomorrow, you might be aware. Big day. Big day, midterm elections. So we have every indicator that we could find about how this thing might go. We've got the ones that are good for the Republicans. We've got a few stragglers that are still good for the Democrats. We're going to go through all of them, and then you can make of it what you will. Um, we also have some footage from on the ground at those rallies. Our friend Jordan Sheridan over at Status Coup gathered some footage for us. So we're hearing from regular voters what they think about the race in Pennsylvania in particular. Um, at the same time, 2024 is already kicking off. Uh, rumors that Trump is set to launch his campaign basically imminently. Next week. Um, taking a few shots at Ron DeSantis and a preview of potential things to come. So that is very interesting as well. We've got new moves from Elon Musk and whatever the hell is going on at Twitter. We also have a report that the Biden administration is actually encouraging Zelensky and Ukrainians to keep the door open mm -hmm. to negotiations and diplomacy. This, of course, comes on the heels of that progressive letter that was retracted, and it was a whole thing, so very interesting developments there. We also have some developing liberal cope <laughs> as the midterm elections seem to be not panning out, so some interesting explanations of exactly what went wrong for them. Uh, we are also going to go ahead and do the most foolish thing possible, which is to make our very specific 
specific predictions, which I'm sure will be completely wrong when we actually get the That's numbers in tomorrow, but what the hell? Yeah. Why not, right? Yeah. <laughs> but before we get to any of that, um, what are we doing tomorrow? Tomorrow we are planning a live stream starting at 7 p.m. That's right. Go and put it up there on the screen. Eastern Standard Time. It's great to be back on Standard Time. 7 p.m. <laughs> we'll be here at the it desk. Good this morning. We've got Marshall, we've got Kyle, we've got Ryan and Emily. We'll have coverage for several hours to take you all the way into the night and break down everything that's going on. We've got some great guests. We've got people who are live on the scene at Oz and Fetterman HQ. Thank you all so much to our premium subscribers who are enabling all of that to be possible. It costs a hell of a lot of money in order to put the whole production on, to have people and pay for people, you know, at various uh, places to have a live hookup, all of that. So we want to thank you all so, so much. And we will have some sort of benefit for you guys tomorrow, which we will reveal. So just to give everyone in terms of scheduling, it will be our show today. Tomorrow, we'll have the live stream beginning at 7. Wednesday morning, we will get no sleep, and we will be here at the desk in order to break down even more yeah. events that break overnight. Do you like instant reaction of instant the late-breaking races? Well, you know, whatever we possibly can for you. Then Thursday and Friday, we'll have two special editions of CounterPoints that Ryan and Emily will be taking over. So everybody's going to have uh, breaking points or CounterPoints every single day of the week. You're all very, very welcome. Make sure uh, you get your fix. It's going to be a fun time. What can we say? Yeah. You know, we're kicking off. It's yeah. going to be big much much anticipated and yeah. a lot of genuine suspense over exactly how this thing is going to break out i feel like there's a lot less certainty than there were in other election cycles where it was just like really clear that there was a wave there might be a wave but it's a little bit less certain so anyway who hangs on who you know comes out of nowhere and wins that you didn't expect it's always interesting so again, starting at 7 p.m., live streaming on the YouTube channel, the whole breaking counter realignment mm -hmm. points and friends, <laughs> extended extended family, we'll be here, we'll go late into the night, and um, tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, though, we're not doing the morning show, Correct. instead we're doing the evening show, and then we'll have show for you Wednesday, counterpoints Thursday, Friday, so that is basically the plan. It's going to be a fun time, everybody. All right, let's go ahead and get started on the midterms. Let's throw our beautiful midterm graphic up there. It's been a while since we've seen it. The road, road to, to nowhere. nowhere. So. <laughs> what we thought is that we would give the two cases here, which is that opening case is the case for a red wave. You know, we've gone over polling, we've gone over corrections, we've gone over what the last poll said. Is it going to turn out? Here is our best case uh, for the GOP. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. The very final poll by Emerson College, Arizona. They have Blake Masters for the first time rising up against Mark Kelly, 48% to Mark Kelly's 47.7%. That is still razor tight and obviously within the margin. But if you assume, you know, some sort of red wave scenario, not difficult to see Masters winning by one or two points. Pennsylvania, a Dr. Oz can, can maintaining the one-point lead that he generally has had in the latest polling averages there in the state of Pennsylvania. Oz at 48, Fetterman at 47. Nevada, this one is actually a little bit more interesting given what we're going to talk about later in the show. They have Adam Laxalt at 51% and Catherine Cortez Masto at 46%. And then finally, Wisconsin. This one's actually a little bit more of a foregone conclusion, though. Yeah. They have Ron Johnson at 51% and Mandela Barnes at 46%. Let's go ahead and throw the next one up there on the screen, which is that the 538 polling average continues to drift very much in the direction of Democrats. We should all remember, what was it? At, what, or sorry, of the Republicans. At one point, Crystal, what was it, like 75, 25? 70, I think 71 or 72 right. was as high as Democrats went. But yeah. it was like a near, you know, that's getting pretty close to the yeah. orders of them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so now <laughs> we are at what? 54 to 46. So over 50% chance in the 538 and the, You got to be unhappy if you're Democrats with the trend. Yes. Because, yeah, what you want 
want to see in the final days is things moving your way, mm -hmm. not just sort of steadily, consistently drifting towards your opponent. And I think and that's it's actually what you see. I think it's worth going down, you know, kind of race by race. The reason why that they have it that way is because they have Walker and Warnock actually more trending in the GOP favor mm -hmm. than Pennsylvania does. So oh, they have it. Yeah, they have it 57 out of 100 percent chance that Walker is going to win in Georgia. But they have Fetterman up very slightly at 54 to 100. However, uh, Adam Laxalt, they have at a 57% chance of winning. Mark Kelly, they have at a 65. Maggie Hassan, right now, they have at 73. But we need to especially highlight that race just because things have tr things have shifted so far in Brian Bolduc's direction in the last couple of days that it really is. And also, they have no early voting in the state of New Hampshire. It's one of those. Oh, I uh, didn't realize. Yeah, I didn't either. And that so it's one of those, you know, truly on the day of will determine mm -hmm. what it is. And that's actually genuinely to the Republicans' benefits. A lot of the latest polls there even have either have it dead even, Brian Bolduck up one, or Maggie Hassan up by two. So to have it very, very tight in the latest days there makes it so that that could be a real surprise on election night. I mean, obviously, there's a, some other crazy scenarios and like a total, total red wave you could consider, I mean, they say Colorado, and I, I don't think it's going to happen personally, mm -hmm. but I yeah. think we're, gen if there is the red wave, uh, I, I don't know. I'm curious what you think. I think 53 seats would be a quote unquote red wave. I that agree. Would be, yeah. That would I mean, be a that big would be pick up for Republicans. Basically, they win all the jump balls. Right. right. Effectively would be it for them to get to 53. And I mean, I, so the latest polls out of New Hampshire, just to um, to underscore that, the most recent one was American Greatness Insider Advantage, which Insider Advantage, I don't know, is that a Republican leaning American pollster? Greatness is. American, American Greatness, greatness is. is. Yeah. So they have Hassan uh, up yeah. one. University of New Hampshire, Hassan up two. Daily Wire Trafalgar was the most recent one that has the Republican Bulldog up by just one. So, I mean, we're talking about either way, very, very narrow margins in that race at this point. I mean, I think basically the Republican theory of the case is that, and, and this was laid out in a New Yorker article, we can go ahead and yeah, put this put up on the there. screen, of like what the insiders, the Republican insiders, who are at least telling journalists that they expect a blowout and they expect a red wave, the case they're effectively laying out here is like, look, yeah, abortion was really bad for us when it happened, mm -hmm. but Democrats went all in on that messaging, and they didn't realize that the impact of that would fade over time. So what they say here is basically like, we didn't figure out a way to neutralize that issue, we just waited it out. And so as that has faded in importance and Republicans have come on strong with, you know, crime ads and especially hitting, you know, on the economy and inflation and Democrats really didn't respond on those issues much at all. That's why you see this late shift towards the GOP and why Democrats in this scenario are in a lot of trouble. I mean, I thought it was interesting too, Sagar. They were mm -hmm. talking about some of the polling because you guys will remember. I mean, back when the 538 uh, average had the Dems' chances of taking the Senate at like 71, 72%, that was when Fetterman was up by double yes. digits. Yes. I mean, certainly Maggie Hassan was in no danger whatsoever. You had Mark Kelly up by double digits. You had Warnock with a smaller but consistent lead at that point. 
Well, what they're arguing is actually you had this response bias in the polls at that point, because after Roe versus Wade is overturned, you have a lot of liberals who are eagerly answering the phone to respond to these polls. And you had a lot of Republicans who were kind of sitting on their hands, not answering the phone. And so now as you get closer to Election Day, it's not even so much that the landscape has really shifted, but the polls are reflecting a more accurate sample of who the voters are actually going to be on Election Day. So um, they have this... Uh, they have this quote here. They say the reason that Democrats have fucked this up is that they won't stop talking about abortion. And the reason they screwed it up with blacks is they won't stop talking about abortion. <laughs> it's like they're a two issue party. It's this and Trump. They can't stop. I don't think they have anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, to me, that's a pretty compelling I mean, theory of the case. Not an unreasonable uh, summary, I think, of what's going yeah. on here. I mean, I actually, to their credit, you know, there was an insider here that actually just put it very succinctly without any of the general talking points. Inflation is the big federal story. Lots of blame belongs to the White House because the White House just wished this would go away yeah. instead of saying, we know it's real, we know it's a problem, it's happening everywhere, we're going to do everything to fix it, but we can't fix it immediately. Not a bad case, right? I mean, that is one of those that I really love seeing because it's devoid of the public rhetoric of like, oh, it's the spending or whatever. Like, look, we can have that debate another day. I think that that lands very effectively in the environment where the White House is basically saying we live in the greatest economy since World War II. And most people are like, well, I can't really pay my bills. Whenever you have a story that affects every single person in the United States, that by definition is going to be the most potent one right. that's going to be in the election. And actually, it's really interesting when you look at rankings of uh, what people find important, even on culture. So you, we were talking about Arizona, right? Yeah. Well, number one or number two is not abortion. It's crime and immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, the three is abortion. So that again, this is the difficult thing. Yes, it matters uh, to many people, however, Crime and immigration, especially in many of the swing states, are above abortion in the preferences of the general voters, especially of the independents. And then you add inflation on top of that, which is really just the trump card for the Republicans in this election. I thought there was an interesting point here made as well that they basically said um, Democrats got caught in what they described as an informational doom loop where in the wake of Roe versus Wade being overturned, they're getting all of these phenomenal poll results. You have those couple of special yep. elections that we covered that it's like, holy shit, this is a bigger issue than mm -hmm. we thought. And because of that, they decided we're going whole hog, we're doing nothing but abortion, we're all in on that. And they never adjusted from that as the polls started to move away from them. And the salience of that issue and the shock of that initial you know, decision started to wear off over time. So because they'd gotten such a strong response in the early days, they thought, oh, this is this is the way, this is the winner. And you know, in fairness, I think. Listen, normally when you see these kinds of economic numbers, right track, wrong track numbers, low presidential approval rating, forget it. It's a done deal. Yep. It's a red wave. It's over. So abortion has kept them somewhat in the game. But they had this theory of like the issues that we think are bad for us, we're just not going to talk about. And we're gonna we're gonna try to shape the issues that are defining this election. We want the issues to be basically abortion and like extremism, democracy, January sixth, that sort of stuff. Well, when you have voters over and over and over and over again saying like that's nice that those are important to you, and we're not saying they're not important, but. We really care about the economy. This is really important to us. And by the way, we do also care a lot about crime and feeling safe, like in our neighborhoods, in our homes. 
You can't just wish cast your narrative of the election onto the electorate. I think they had every opportunity to rebut the Republican talking points on inflation. I think the Biden administration had every opportunity to talk about corporate price gouging and really call executives onto the carpet and really make that a focal point and a centerpiece of the campaign. And yeah, structurally, it would still have been difficult for them because they're the party in power and things aren't going well. And so people are going to say you're to blame. But if you could even eat into the Republican margin on the economy and on crime, where you could make a compelling case like, hey, these these people are out like flooding our streets with with guns and allowing illegal guns to flow. And that's part of the crime problem. But But at least you would have at least you would have something to say. Instead, they do this on on these issues. They do this, you know, they did the same thing on CRT. They do the same thing on um, the the fights over uh, transgender issues in public schools. Instead, they just want to say like, ah, we're just not going to talk about that and hope that it ultimately goes away. I think the lesson here is that, especially in the current media environment, and especially as effective as Republicans are at focusing these issues and putting them on the table, you can't afford to just completely cede the issue to the other side. You have to at least have your own narrative around it, at least be messaging on it, and try to eat into their lead on those issues. Yeah, I think it's possible. Although I'm not so sure. I mean, to be honest, like even when they do try and justify their uh, positions, they're frankly even more popular when they don't talk about it, which is generally why they don't. I mean, on Im- what do you mean? Well, especially on, uh, on some of the cultural issues, like the crime. I mean, the the guns argument you made, that's Eric yeah. Adams' uh, position in New York. He's got a historically low a rating on crime. So it's not like it actually works. Same with the other cultural issues that you mentioned. Like, honestly, when they do admit what they want, like, it just makes it more popular, which is why they generally ignore well, it. I so, think like, you could have framed crime very yeah. much as an issue. Like, the voting public is much more on Democrat side on guns. Like, the Republican sure. position on guns is ex- really extreme. And so at least then you have a competing theory of the case of why crime is high and what Democrats will do to make you feel safer. I just don't think that you can say, like, ah, we're just going to not talk about this and hope people don't notice. Same thing, inflation is really clear to me. Like, this is the number one issue. If there is a red wave, it's because of the economy, bottom line. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that was really clear. I think that was the case with Glenn Youngkin, even though there were also cultural issues that were relevant and very motivating to the base there as well. You can't just hope that people aren't going to notice they can't pay their bills and inflation is still high. Yeah, you that, can't that just, like, pray that people aren't going to realize that their budgets are stretched thin and they're, like, basically getting a pay cut every single week. That is not going to work out. So, again, I think it would be difficult for them to win economic voters. But because abortion is a salient issue, because you have a cast of characters on the Republican side that's, like, insane, psycho, where do they even find these people, that would have at least kept them in the game. And I think there is a compelling case that they could make that they just decided instead to bury their heads in the sand and be like, no, actually, the economy's great. Yeah, that's fair. All right, why why don't we give the blue case? All right, so here is the theory of the case for Democrats. If you're looking for any sort of hopeful signs that maybe this is isn't going to work out the way that things seem to be trending in a lot of the indicators. Um, the last Marist poll that came out actually is pretty good for Democrats. Let's go ahead and put this on the screen to start with. You've got uh, Fetterman beating Oz by six percentage points, 50 to 44. That's, of course, in Pennsylvania. You've also got Shapiro over Mastriano there by an even larger margin. Um, you have Kelly hanging on in Arizona to win over Blake Masters by four points, 49-45. Um, you even have this one... Uh, Skeptical this is going to work out, but uh, Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, holding on for governor there over Kerry Lake, uh, 48-47. Georgia Senate, you have Warnock narrowly over Walker, four points, 49-45. By the way, uh, we should always note on Georgia, 
very likely Georgia goes to a runoff. Mm -hmm. Because if neither of these candidates get over 50, then you're in runoff territory. So that's kind of what I expect to happen in the Georgia Senate race, um, whether Warnock or Walker ultimately edges the other one out in total votes. And then you have, um, this one is just consistent across the board, kept beating Abrams for governor of Georgia. But you know, if you're a Democrat, you're looking at those numbers and go, okay, all right, getting Pennsylvania, getting Arizona, getting Georgia. These numbers look pretty solid. We can live with that. Um, you also have in the final NBC News poll, I saw a lot of Democrats sharing this, uh, this news from that particular poll. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. You have Democratic enthusiasm rising to be at the same level as Republican enthusiasm. Previously, Republicans in the last poll that they had taken, they had Republicans with a pretty significant edge, I think it was like nine points, in terms of being highly interested in this election. So if you're a Democrat, you're like, oh, this tells a different story than what I'm seeing in a lot of the other indicators, which are all trending to the Republicans. Maybe Democrats are turning out in a higher rate then it's really reflected in some of these polls because they've closed the enthusiasm gap. You have the generic congressional ballot. They have Dems up by one point. Unfortunately for Democrats, you know, even if they were to win by a point or basically tie in terms of the generic congressional ballot, you have to win by several points in order for Democrats to win the House. So even that indicator here is not that great. And I do have to say, you know, if you dig into any of the other numbers in this poll saga, they also are not that great for Democrats. You've got Biden's approval rating still at 44%. You've got 70% saying the U.S. is on the wrong track. You have bad numbers in terms of the economy. But, you know, if you're looking for sort of like hopeful signs, the fact that you have high Democratic enthusiasm is encouraging. One other thing I pulled here that I thought was interesting and that we'd covered before, Nate Cohn at the New York Times, who's been not only tracking what their data says, but also tracking like what's the state of polling in America. He had previously said, guys, warning signs abound that we're having the same sort of polling misses as we did previously. These pollsters haven't really fixed their issues. You're seeing Dem unexpected overperformance in some of the same states where we had huge misses, states like Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Well, he's now saying that that polling warning sign has significantly dimmed. Let's put this last piece up on the screen here. Um, he says the emergence of Republican-leaning pollsters has reduced the risk that polling averages will overestimate Democrats. And in fact, a lot of those races, like Pennsylvania, where we're like, is Fetterman really up by like 12 and 14 points? Pretty doubtful there. Well, now, obviously, that shows a much, much narrower margin, even with odds leading in certain instances. You know, same thing, Ohio, it no longer, Tim Ryan, I haven't seen a poll with him up or even really that close in quite a while. Ohio, these white working class states are, um, you know, places where there have been significant polling misses. So you no longer have that trend of sort of unexpected um, polling out performance and some of the states with some of the big misses. So if you're a Democrat, you look at that and go like, okay, well, maybe the polls are actually, like if I look at the averages, kind of accurate. And if the polls are kind of accurate going into the, um, you know, especially for the Senate races, then we're in the hunt. We got a chance to hold on. It's possible. I would just say, he says, well, at best, you know, it looks like the polling miss is like 2018. So I'm like, okay, well, what was polling miss in 2018? 
Well, uh, we may forget that Marsha Blackburn ended up beating her polls by 12 points in Tennessee. Uh, Ohio ended up going by seven. Pennsylvania outperformed by four, all in the Republican direction. Yeah, of course. Player. Yeah. Uh, Pennsylvania by four. Georgia actually by one. So Arizona also by one. So many of the states in 2018, if you have a similar polling era of which Nate Cohn is saying, it looks like all of those actually under, underestimated specifically GOP performance in the Senate in those states. Yeah. So in a 50-50 environment, I still think it would go to the yeah. Look, I don't know. I mean, again, it t totally could go the other way. I mean, if you want to talk about Nevada, we were talking about this morning. Yeah, Some so, interesting data. Yeah, this, this was interesting. I, yeah. I'll add this one into the, the positive signs. For, this yeah. is actually maybe the best sign that I've seen for Democrats, right. to be honest with you. So John Ralston, who some of you guys will know, is this like longtime storied political analyst in the state of Nevada. He's got his own blog. And he has tracked early voting data in Nevada, which has long been a state that, you know, has a significant proportion of the mail-in vote for a long time. And he has been extremely accurate in terms of being able to look at the early vote and forecast who's ultimately going to win on Election Day. And he is actually just this morning, after uh, a, a batch of very strong mail for Democrats came in, he is actually predicting that Catherine Cortez Masto is going to hold on. Mm -hmm. And effectively... I mean, Nevada is a state that I'm fascinated by politically because it's much more working class. Democrats have been able to hold on to more of a working class base there, primarily because of the uh, union density and because of the the storied like Reed machine. Now Harry Reid has passed away, but the machine is at least somewhat still in operation. And so uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, who has actually trailed in a lot more of the uh, polls and a lot more of the average longer than the other Democratic candidates, He's saying she pulls it off. Now, Nevada polls have been more accurate than other polls. Um, and also, uh, Democrats have, even in you know years where things went badly for them in other places, they've been able to sort of shore things up in Nevada, again, because of that union density and because of the Reed machine. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, he's very cautious in the prediction he's made. He said, look, I could still see it going either mm -hmm. way. Really depends how strong the turnout is on election day. It depends where the um, you know the unaffiliated voters who don't say they're Republican or Democrat, like how hard do they swing in one direction or the other. It could still definitely go for the other dude, uh, Laxalt. But he said Laxalt's run a lackluster campaign. Catherine Cortez Masto is nothing to write home about either. But he thinks that ultimately she hangs on, even as the Democratic governor he thinks is more likely to lose. Yeah, I think it's possible. I have a friend, though, who went through and actually read some of Ralston's analysis and actually said, by Ralston's own analysis, if the independents do break, then Laxalt is going to win. So I think that is you know, the one caveat, which is that even by his own numbers, if the GOP does win the independent vote there, then they are going to win. Now, as you said, Nevada is kind of a crazy state. You do have it's rural, but you have a lot more uh, union. You have Nevada. It's like an urban and rural divide. You have a lot of educational uh, alignment that you don't see necessarily across the rest of the country with working class men and voters. So it is very interesting demographically also uh, up there. I think, it's, I think it's very interesting and it's possible. There's also an interesting environment we were talking about this morning where you could see a upset in Nevada, not an upset, you could see the Democrat there holding on, but then a possible upset in here in the East Coast, like in New Hampshire. But in general, as you and I were saying before the show, these things all move in one way. Either all the Republicans yeah. win or they don't. So we'll see. I mean, I will say 
if any state was going to be a little different than the other ones, I do think it's Nevada. Yeah. Just because, I mean, you could put it in, in two directions. I mean, number one, they were incredibly hit hard by inflation. They were incredibly hit hard by COVID because it is a service-dominated economy. But on the other hand, we have seen Nevada sort of hold on even in red wave years for Democrats because of some of those structural underlying factors. So if you were going to have one state that went a little bit of a different way than the other ones, Nevada would be a good candidate. You know, equally as interesting, he says, um, the early voting numbers do not indicate a red wave, just the possibility of one if everything breaks right for Republicans. This is not like 2014 when all the early voting data confirmed red wave. I know after a couple of days, it was just a question of how many votes would be lifted by the red tide. And so again, you have these sort of contradictory indicators overall, you know, I think you would you would definitely rather be the Republicans going into Election Day. As I look at all of this data, you've really got to kind of cherry pick to find things that look positive for Democrats, this being a key piece of it. And it goes back to, you know, do you, do you believe at the end of the day, the macro structural factors of economy, right track, wrong track, presidential approval, inflation, do you believe those things are going to be more determinative than Republicans nominated a group of like terrible candidates and is it those individual candidate quality issues that will ultimately be the determining factor you know it has long been my theory that the overall national mood is more important but we have to say like you know if republicans had nominated basically like glenn youngkin types mm -hmm. in all of these races done deal right. it'd be over it wouldn't even be close so they've given democrats every opportunity to be able to stay in this fight and even have a shot on election day, but even with you know with that caveat in there, overall I still think things are moving very much towards. I'll tell you one thing, Crystal, yeah. which is that Joe Biden's last campaign stop of 2020 is going to be here in Ashburn, Virginia. And to me, the fact that you have to contest an area with nine that you won by 19 points in 2020, <laughs> listen, I mean, you can make the case for the yeah. blue wave all you want. I'm looking at that. The man is campaigning in Oregon, okay? Well, like, when you have to go to although, Oregon. I mean, like, it's also partly because he's so dreadful on the stump. That's also true, yeah. That they just, they don't want to send him anywhere where he could do damage. <laughs> really, I mean, and he's, he's not popular, so the candidates aren't like clamoring to have him there. Right. They'd much rather have Obama if they're gonna, you know, pick someone. And so, yeah, I mean, they sent him to Florida. Like, Ron DeSantis is going to win by probably double digits. I know. <laughs> like, go Charlie Crist. I right. mean, so, the, you know, the strategy was basically to not have him do a lot, but to go places. I think he also, didn't he go to, like, Maryland? Yes. To um, campaign for the Democratic gubernatorial nominee who's, like, definitely going to win again by double digits. Um, so I think that's more what they're focused on is like, where can we send Joe that he's not going to cause any problems? And even doing that, he still caused some problems talking about like shutting down coal plants and the way that Democrats Forgetting always. Forgetting his son died, but I guess we could put that for a second. <laughs> yeah, we'll get, right. we'll get to that. Um, at the same time, we did have some reporters on the ground with our affiliate status coup um, at a, uh, I think it was at the, not, the Obama Biden rally mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. And then also outside of the Trump rally in Pennsylvania, a lot of folks flooding the zone in Pennsylvania. Um, they talked to some of the voters there about how they're thinking about this election, what issues are top of mind for them. Let's take a listen. Why I'm voting is because I'm tired of the lies. The, the Republican Party feel that they can get away with crime and lie. Mr. Oz is a hypocrite, he's a coward, and he's a liar. No doctor talks about a, a stroke victim. You don't use a stroke victim for leverage. He called, he called 
Fetterman for tax fraud. But he's kissing Trump's butt, who's under indictment for taxes. He's a coward because he's going to the Senate to help McConnell and Trump. He's not his own man. And he's a pathological liar for what he did with the diet supplements and the opioids. He's a, he, he, he only spent five minutes here to sign a thing that said that he's living with his mother. Really? There is no GOP in this state that could have represented Pennsylvania. They had to go to New Jersey. Come on, be serious. Be serious. Veterans are for Fetterman, Shapiro, Summerlee, Deluzio, and I'm an independent voter, and I will never vote for another Republican after January 6th, and that's a fact. What is your top issue when you're making your decision on the vote right now? The border. The border? Inflation. Everything. Border and inflation. Border and inflation. Okay, gotcha. What do you think Republicans are going to do to solve inflation um, that's kind of making you lean towards them versus any Democrat candidate? I don't there's have a, the slightest idea what they'll do. Dave, he knows more about there's it. a lot of things they could do. First of all, there's stuff that there's money that's being spent that doesn't have to be spent. And granted, everybody should have a fair share, but there's liquidities that can be sold off, which we don't need. And the big thing about that is once you start, the, hard, the whole thing is once you have to pull the inflation back, but you can't do it without dropping the bottom out of the market. You drop the bottom out of the market, we're back to 1929. Right. So once that, you know, it's going to have to be a slow process. It can be done, but you got to just say, that's it. We're done spending. And Sagar, I think in those just yeah. couple of interviews, you see exactly what we're talking about. The person who's going to vote for the Democrats, what's he talking about? Oz's specific yes. caricature, caricature. He clearly is very traits. into the news, too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, I love how he says he's independent. I'm like, bro, you're not. Like, here's the thing it's fine. I, I enjoy seeing the way that people conceive of themselves. Yeah. But so, so you see yeah. that the character traits of yeah. Oz are what he's focused on. And then when you talk to the, you know, the ones outside the Trump rally who are all voting for the Republicans, they're focused on its inflation, yep. it's the border. Um, and it also shows you, like, Republicans don't even really have to have an answer of what they would do about inflation. When you're the party that's in opposition, all you have to say is like, the Democrats are in control and things aren't going well. Yeah, they're just and pissed so, off. Exactly. Right. So, you know, it's it's incumbent on the Democrats to be able to explain like, okay, here's why and here's what we'll do and here's why it'll be different next time. The Republicans really can just say like inflation, inflation, inflation without having any plan and it's sufficient. I completely agree. Uh, it was a good illustration too. You know, Philadelphia, the rally that's happening, uh, that's exactly what they're trying to, they're going to try and recreate the story of 2020, driving out a ton of vote in the city of Philly and in the mainline suburbs. And of course, you know, Western PA, Bucks County as well, which is just on fire. You have all three presidents, which were in the state, basically in the same weekend, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, I think Bernie yeah. was out there too. Bernie was out there. Yeah. Everybody was in Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, which is fun because it's like a preview also of 2024. And I think it does just show you the changing electorate, where the polls are trending. And it just shows like within those two things, you got an illustration of exactly how a lot of people are thinking. Are so I like it. listening to actual voters. Yes, good. indeed. All right, let's move on now to Trump uh, 2024, possibly. Let's go ahead and put this up there. On the screen, the Trump team is leaking to first to Axios, but then to every single major paper <laughs> in the country. November 14th could be the day, maybe, although possibly he might change his mind. As with anything Trump, he probably will. But November 14th, for now, the official announcement will be followed, quote, by a multi-day series of political events. Trump and his top advisors have been signaling now 2024 announcement is imminent, and those discussions have reached the Point. Allies are blocking off days in their calendars for the week after the midterms and preparing to travel. Why? 
Trump is pointing towards a possible good night for Republicans. He wants to surf on the post-midterm euphoria to build momentum for his campaign and to try and retake the White House. He wants to see it as a referendum on him, not on inflation and the broader economy. Why I think this is very interesting is, as always, he wants to preempt as soon as possible anybody who might actually run mm -hmm. against him. And we'll get to the DeSantis part, which a lot of people are focusing on in a second. But to me, the major news was Tom Cotton called all of his donors yesterday yep. and officially leaked it. I'm not running in 2024. I think it's smart. He's a young man. Why would you do it? I mean, I've seen a lot of discussion on this. We could save some of this for the DeSantis conversation. But the Mike Pompeo's of the world, Tom Cotton, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, any Chris Christie, I mean, you don't have a chance in hell. I mean, I just don't know why it is not eminently obvious to anyone that even in, take Florida, uh, for example, even there, DeSantis is tied with Trump in a head-to-head -head poll. Right. Like New Hampshire, yeah. there was that one poll that showed DeSantis ahead, but then actually another one came out and Trump was winning by like 25 points. Like everybody likes to fo po focus on like one or two polls here or there, but Here's the reality. He's the most popular figure in the Republican Party by a mile. Some people don't like him. Most of them are not Republicans today. Yeah. And as 2020 showed us, you can have a very low approval rating and still get 75 million votes for the presidency if people don't like the other guy. So listen, I mean, it's a formidable candidate for all of the quote unquote GOP civil war. I don't think there will be one. It's very smart to announce as early as possible. Personally, I think he should have announced the day that he was uh, raided by the FBI because that's when Glenn Youngkin and all those other people yeah. came out. Everybody was like, Everybody oh, he'll screw knee. up the midterms. Listen, Trump is baked in no matter what. At this point, I think people have proven that they care about many things other than Trump. Well, I think here's the other dynamic is it's very likely Trump is going to get indicted yeah, and yeah, that that's going to happen pretty awesome. soon. And right. what's going to happen is just like with the raid, um, everybody from Ron DeSantis to Glenn Youngkin to Mike Pompeo, every single one of them is going to have to defend him when he's indicted, bend the knee once again, just like they did when Mar-a-Lago was raided. It only, with the base, strengthens his hands. It's a different deal with the general elector. But with the base, it really only makes him stronger, forces them all to, again, come to his aid, show who the real boss is in terms of the Republican Party. And it also, once again, focuses the entire media ecosystem around him. So he's planning, it looks like, to announce very quickly um, before an indictment comes in. And that's also like part of the calculation here. And before anyone, I mean, DeSantis will have just been reelected. He's obviously not going to be in any position to like yep. then just turn around and be like, by the way, now I'm running for president after you just reelected me as governor. And he's able to sort of consolidate support and, you know, really assert his continued dominance of the party. And to me, you know, it's a fairly simple story. I actually think Biden is in a much weaker position. I'm talking about some of this mm -hmm. in my monologue vis-a-vis -vis the Democratic Party than Trump is with the Republican Party. So a lot of things he's, you know, ridiculous and can be a fool. Uh, but in terms of just political power moves and branding, the dude is a genius, and I think to get out right after the midterms and go ahead and launch your campaign and make it clear to all comers that you're the guy, you're in it, and show that sort of like show of force, show of strength, yeah, I think it's a savvy move. And every Republican candidate is going to have to bow. I mean, Oz is going to bow, all of them. Yeah. Uh, who are, if you were Walker, you know, let's think if Walker wins, literally Trump is the one who picked him. Nobody else wanted Herschel Walker to be the next senator from Georgia. So he's going to have to go and bow with Trump. Every one of these guys, every single time, like, 
I, I'm telling you, so I, I will never forget, I interviewed Trump in 2018, the days after the midterm election. It was a big interview for me because it was the first interview that he gave after the 2018. And he went race by race, he was obsessed. He's like, look at DeSantis, he was down by 36. I came in, I endorsed him, and he won. Now he won big. You know, he goes down the list of every person. He actually had a list in front of him, prepared by his staff, every person he endorsed, what they were at before he endorsed them, how they much they won their primary, and then what they won the election by. He yeah. is obsessed with getting the credit for, and I anticipate that he's going to be doing that all throughout uh, this I mean, tour, whether it's true or not. I mean, look, it's a smart move, right? Like, yeah. you're the person, you're going to show, hey, we just had this big GOP support. I'm going to take back the White House in 2024. Well, one of the things we covered in the Republican primaries was some of the just, like, embarrassing lengths that Republican candidates would go yeah. to to try to secure his endorsement. Mm -hmm. Did not see a similar dynamic with regard to Ron DeSantis. I mean, there's just no doubt that if you are a Republican running in a Republican primary and depending on the Republican base for your power, whose endorsement you would rather have. It's not even close because this is, you know, largely where the base is. So I guess let's go ahead and get to the, the DeSantis yes, part and then we can flesh it. that out we've fully. We've teased it so much. Let's get ahead to this clip. Lots of notice and we'll have lots of commentary. Let's take a listen. It's Trump at 71, Ron DeSanctimonious at 10%, Mike Pence at 7 Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. <laughs> Mike's doing better than I thought. Ron DeSanctimony, what do you all think? So, I'll be honest. Initially, I was somewhat overwhelmed. However, now that I have seen the pushback yeah. from the DeSantis bros online, I think Trump is on to something. So let's go put this up there for Matt Walsh. The Daily Wire crew is very upset about this. They're all like, DeSantis is an extremely effective conservative governor who's had real policy wins, real cultural wins. Trump isn't going to be able to take this one down with a dumb nickname. He better have more than that up his sleeve. Uh, you know, Costa, Robert Costa over at CBS News had a similar take where he's like, many DeSantis allies are dispirited by President Trump's attack on him, a popular Republican governor. They did not expect to try and take him down ahead of the election. I'm like, listen, uh, do you know Trump? Like, are you, like you think do you, he cares about the Republican Party? Yeah, are you it, kidding me? <laughs> it's we, the man has been at the center of politics since 2015. It's been seven years. I think we all know he doesn't care about the Republican Party. Hence that famous moment when he's like, maybe I'll run as an independent if I don't win the nomination. He literally only cares about one thing, which is attention and as a commodity. He can see, and it's probably extremely aggravated, as many reports have indicated, that Ron DeSantis has even floated somewhat next to his name. And anybody who believes that DeSantis could somehow win a GOP nomination without attacking Trump and not getting into a full-scale brawl as Cruz and as Rubio both did and then somehow come out victorious, I, what are you smoking? Yeah. Like, we, you and I have said this from the beginning. And it's funny because a lot of the DeSantis people, they don't want to hear it. And yet, every poll I've ever looked at for GOP voters tells me that DeSantis is purely like a college-educated phenomenon. Amongst college-educated men specifically in the GOP, DeSantis is the preferred candidate. Yeah. Amongst working class men, it's like 78, it's not 20 you're Trump. Not, and you're not like, at this point winning a Republican primary with a college educated exactly. like sort of more elite electorate. Right. Not happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's to me, <laughs> the DeSantis phenomenon, it's like the new iteration of the sort of like never Trump instinct. It's like people right. who the people who are really behind it are like, we don't like Trump, mm -hmm. we think he's obnoxious. 
we, you know, we want to replace him. We want someone else. But the the going directly at him didn't work. So let's get someone who's like sort of aligned with him and certainly backs his agenda and hasn't said mean things about him. Maybe we can like sneak someone in that way. But ultimately, these two people are going to be head to head. If if DeSantis even runs, which there was also some reporting that he was basically signaling to donors like, I think I'm going to wait. Well, apparently, you know that guy? Remember Ken Griffin, the GameStop billionaire? Yeah. Uh, that guy, he's like, I would write an unlimited check for yeah. DeSantis. I'm like, yeah, let's take the corrupt GameStop guy. Yeah. And he'll be the right. person. That's- and, it, you know, it's not to your benefit when the only people who are truly in your corner are like the Ben Shapiros of the world. Ben was a never-Trumper in 2016. Yeah, Ben did Exactly. Like he did in 2020. But he's like a tangential ally. He's like a true con of the conservative movement and cares about that. Trump doesn't care about any of that. Right. And I have to come back to this, like, true fantasy. Trump does, for all the reasons for why people would prefer DeSantis, quote, he gets things done, Trump without Trump. Those are the reasons why people love Trump. Like, that's what nobody has ever wanted to grapple with. You know, I see these guys, and I'm like, listen, I used to think this way, so I'm somewhat sympathetic. They're like, well, you know, if the GOP is going to win on the backs of working class voters, they're going to have to deliver for them. I'm like, oh, really? Did Trump do that? Trump had two singular achievements in office. Number one, he cut taxes for rich people and corporations. Two, he let a bunch of drug dealers out of prison. Guess what? He didn't do, suffer any at all in the polls. He actually won 10 million more votes. So I see no evidence that you have to deliver anything for many of the people who are out there right now. And you still can't be tremendously successful at the ballot box. I don't wish it were that way, but it is. I mean, (laughs) he has really made the Republican Party synonymous with him. And so DeSantis is able to rise a bit, mm-hmm. as long as there isn't this direct head-to-head confrontation. And this is what I always thought, and they have this theory of like, oh, well, DeSantis did better on the lockdown. I honestly, I mean, first People of all, that's like care. a ways of yeah. the past right. at this yeah, point. It's two years ago, and I'm sorry. Second of all, like, you think that like the facts and the reality of the particular policy decisions that were made, Trump will just make up some other shit, some other narrative of what happened, and people will go along with it. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, you know, I I don't even know if DeSantis really ends up running. Um, I also, you know, a lot of a lot of people are very critical of the like DeSanctimonious. They didn't think it was that great of a uh, nickname. I actually thought it was kind of good. Yeah, because I agree. The thing with a nickname is it has to strike at something that is you know that has a kernel of truth that cr- makes the person into a caricature of some of their worst traits. And I thought it was interesting. There was reporting this morning about how Trump came up with the nickname, and I guess he's been privately testing different, they describe as derisive nicknames for Mr. DeSantis with his friends and advisors. Roger Stone had floated this one in particular on Truth Social. Um, But what really locked in DeSanctimonious for Trump was that DeSantis released this video that was uh, aimed at, they say, infusing his candidacy with a sense of the divine. The 96-second black-and-white video, which invokes God 10 times, was fashioned after a famous So God Made a Farmer speech in the 70s by the radio broadcaster Paul Harvey. You guys probably remember the Rams trucks used it in a Super Bowl ad highlighting the importance of farming. Well, DeSantis took that and made his own version, which was posted by his wife, where they say, and on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. And that fighter is Ron DeSantis. Yeah. So you can see in watching that how you're like, yeah, DeSanctimonious. That fits pretty well, actually. Listen, uh, once again, I just got to come back to it. Like, oh, he gets things done. People don't care about getting things done. They're like, oh, he, listen. And even when... I, 
DeSantis, I'm not, I'm gonna, look, I think he's fine, uh, but having watched him, like, he doesn't have the it factor. I'm always like, the case that they always make, he's like Trump without the X. But people love the X. That's the, that's they the like whole it. Thing they're there yeah, for it's the like, X. <laughs> they're there for the show. That's the whole point. Once again, do I want politics to work this way? No, but it does. I mean, we have to be, you go to war with the troops that you have. And like simply the troops show that they love Trump. Every polling indication that we have, the, the endorsement thing is such a good example. You have state senators out there who are literally running on like, I'm back in Trump in like Wisconsin. Yeah. For the, let's say, they don't, yeah, they know who he is. They like him. But he's a secondary figure. He's like a, you know, a B-list star compared to A-list talent. And look, you know, for all of the talk of effectiveness and all that, like I just, I do not see any evidence that any of that actually matters to any of the people who will vote in a GOP primary. And the freak out over it was to me very interesting because I was like, what did y'all think was going to happen? Yeah, I, I know. Like, did yeah. you just think he was going to just right. let DeSantis do his thing and never like try to check his rising influence? Of mm -hmm. course, of course not. I mean, it was always going to come to some sort of a head-to-head -head confrontation if you really are serious and think this is going to get done. So anyway, um, interesting. And listen, guys, day after the midterms, 2024 is on. If it's not on already, um, there's all kinds of you know questions about what Biden's going to do and what the midterms mean for him and all sorts of jockeying on the Democratic side, obviously the Republican side. So just prepare yourself. It's 2024 right away, the minute that the, the um, polls close on Tuesday night. I'm going to enjoy it. What, we have no other choice. <laughs> Chaos over at Twitter. Yeah. Uh, let's start with this one. Elon having some serious trouble here. Let's put it up there on the screen. He says, quote, Twitter has had massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, right, even though right there. nothing has changed with content moderation and we did everything that we could to appease the activists. Extremely messed up. They are trying to destroy free speech in America. Well, as we have said from day one, whenever you are an advertiser-reliant business, it is going to be tremendously a big problem because many of those folks are ruled by an ideology, or at the very least, like they don't want to have to deal with a bad headline. They're not so, ruled by an ideology other than money, and they're right. worried about like, yeah, he says, oh, content moderation hasn't changed, but then he has made some specific content moderation. He's just totally erratic and all over the place. That's actually so what they're I like, want to get to. We're just going to wait this thing out. He did himself no favors with that advertising on those advertisers thing by tweeting the Paul Pelosi story out. That's actually, I think that might actually be the single most impactful you're probably thing right about that, that he has done as owner. Cause they're like, I can't deal with this. Like if you're gonna tweet out this stuff. And look, I think even now, given all this NBC stuff, yeah, we should ask questions. But you, and I'm not, I would never bring that to air you know, when the job that you and I do, right. without verification, we can ask questions. Asking questions is fine. But by linking to that, he actually showed, you know, being so quick on the draw that the advertisers were, who are already on the fence are like, I'm just not going to go with this. And you have a bunch of people who are already being pressured by the NAACP and all these other fake groups, uh, which, are like, which are like, oh, we're going to see an explosion of X or Y or whatever word that you want to see. And listen, I mean, it, that's, that's why I would and say that it's not just money, Crystal. I think that they are, given the fact that Twitter ads are mostly fake anyway, yeah. and they've never been proven to be all that effective, and it was all part of like vanity budgeting, that to be pressured, it's not, it costs them nothing to uh, actually yield to There's, the activist Well, campaign. that's it. There's yeah. a million places you can advertise. Right, right. Why are you going to run the risk of having your advertisement next to like 
someone saying the N-word and like saying right. Paul Pelosi got murdered by his gay lover or whatever. Right. Like you're right. just not gonna take that risk. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, before this all deal closed and everything, Elon made this comment. He was like, this is, I don't care about making money at all. He was trying to portray this like, this is just a, a free speech play. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, that is so obviously absurd and ridiculous. And you took on a lot of debt to be able to close this deal. You have responsibility to like pay back your lenders and whatever. So it's not like you can make this some sort of nonprofit play unless you're willing to pony up like your own net worth in order to backstop the whole thing, which obviously is not since he took on all this debt. So I, I, the, the level of like you said chaos, erratic decision making just all over the place. Of course, advertisers are going to be like, yeah, we're going to wait. We've got a lot of other places that we can spend our dollars, and we're going to see how this all shakes out to decide whether we're ever coming back. And the secondary part, too, which is that, let's put this up there, which is that he's really trying to have it all both ways. He says, Twitter's strong commitment to content moderation remains unchanged. In fact, we have seen hateful speech at times decline below our prior norms, contrary to what you may read in the press. I keep seeing this canard that Elon is putting out there, which I think he's just getting completely wrong. He keeps saying over and over again, our goal is for Twitter to be the most accurate source of information about the world. Here's the problem. You cannot look accurate to whom? Right. Um, by what standard? Given what set of facts? That is the mindset which doomed Twitter in the first place. That's what led to fact-checking. That's what's sticking by the community notes feature, which I'm still totally against. Um, any sort of editorial judgment about tweets or not is ludicrous. And second, you know, we had, this all just happened last night, but Elon now has a policy that verified accounts are gonna be, quote, permanently suspended for impersonating. Now, many verified accounts like Kathy Griffin and others were like changing their name to Elon Musk. I'm not gonna lie, it's actually confusing whenever you're on Twitter, because you're like, oh, is that actually Elon or not? But here's the point. Um, now, again, you are picking and choosing what flies and what doesn't. So it's like old boss is the same as a new boss. Yeah. Like what's getting banned and what's not. The more that quote accurate information becomes the North Star and not just let people say whatever they want, as annoying as it is, then really you're just getting yourself into dangerous territory and you will fall into the same pitfalls that Jack Dorsey fell into, that the previous censorship regime did. And, you know, look, I, I just, I, A, it's already ruined, it will ruin the experience for the users because with the fact checking and all that, you never know what is actually true. It diminishes yeah. trust in the platform and it leads to all sorts of debates. And second, you know, as we saw, it's already, it's not like it's helping you with your advertisers no. in the meantime. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mean even Jack Dorsey, of course, yeah. former uh, CEO and founder of Twitter, he even replied like accurate to who yeah, with regards good. to that right. should be the most accurate platform on the planet. Yes. Um, that dude, 50 Shades of Way tweeted, yeah. Free speech absolutist Elon Musk went from comedy is now legal to banning Kathy Griffin right. in less than 10 days. Right. Totally fair. And also, I mean, he has a history of being very thin-skinned in terms of like how he runs his companies and whatever too. And this just strikes of, yeah, he didn't like people were making fun of him. Mm -hmm. So he went also from saying no more permanent bans to we're permanently banning you for basically making fun of me. Um, it's, you know, again, incredibly erratic, really reveals a lot about the fact that, number one, I mean, I've always been annoyed 
talking about the Elon story because there's this whole idea among conservatives, among liberals of like the good billionaires versus the bad billionaires. When what you really see here is the reason these platforms are the way they are is because of the business incentives. And that was so clear instantly when Elon Musk takes over and the first thing he does effectively is like write his letter to advertisers like, please, please stay around. There is a business model here that if we want to get away from, you're gonna have to do something really different. It's gonna have to come from the government. There is no billionaire out there who's gonna be better, who's gonna ultimately rescue it. And I also think that it takes some of the, uh, the luster off of the mythology of Elon Musk as well, where it's like, you know, he was really seen as the sort of global genius and this like incredible businessman and savvy and he's working on a level we can't even understand. And then you see these moves that are just scattershot all over the place, just throwing everything against the wall. And you kind of, it's kind of a mask off moment in terms of his real capability. I will say, so I'll defend him on this count, which is that having read the history of Tesla and SpaceX, they were a complete shit show until they weren't shit show. So like SpaceX nearly failed and went bankrupt many times in 2006. They had like three, there's actually a video, people should go watch it, of him with basically used all of the last money on this last launch. He's like, if this is it, the company is dead. And everybody, anyway, it ended up working. Tesla too, I mean, it was a nightmare and that's why short sellers were gonna get the stock for all, almost a decade, basically, up until now. So I think a man can still turn around. Uh, he, every single one of his companies has been typified by chaos, but not uh, not inspiring moves. And let's move on then to the second part here, yeah. which is exactly gets to what you said, which is that, look, if you really do want a, a Twitter, which is free of censorship, the only way to really proof it then is to have a business model like we do here, which is direct to subscription and does not rely on advertisers. So. But the problem, though, is that to their plan on this, A, I don't think fulfills that with the plan to charge $8 for verification. But second, that, too, is chaotic in itself. Let's put this up there on the screen. This was originally Twitter is to begin offering its $7.99 a month verification subscription. But then, Crystal, just last night, they announced they're actually going to delay the full-scale move to verification until on Twitter Blue midterm. until after the midterm elections because they don't want to have to deal with any of the ensuing chaos during elections and information and whatever is happening on that front. It does just highlight, though, that this scheme is not exactly all that well thought out. And I just let's let's highlight it just one more time for people. What they're charging eight dollars a month for is allegedly some sort of like priority replies and all that other stuff if you were to follow and to reply to people, which I believe kind of exists for existing verification, but really it's just the blue check for $8 a month. And again, it just underscores that they people who are doing this miss the value of like what the blue, char, blue check even is, right. which is all it was and originally instituted was to make sure that the people who are on Twitter who are tweeting are who they say they are so you can quote trust the information. Right. Hence why tweets from individuals from Jeff Bezos to Bill Gates and others can move stock markets as Elon himself found out uh, whenever he tweeted about taking Tesla private. Mm -hmm. um, that was the point. It was in, it was instituted to make the trust, the, verif the ability of the information on the platform to be trusted. By moving away from that and making people pay He's actually losing it because some people, I think both of us probably are not going to pay for it. I don't see any inherent value in the check mark. I yeah. just don't care. Like, right. but and I've said this before, moving to an enterprise system of you know more followers being able to keep access to them and seeing exactly like getting value out of the platform, possibly as customer services, all kinds of different things that you could do. That's where I think the real 
money is. I really do not think that this scheme is going to work. But listen, well, you know, he's fooled us all before. Like, we'll see. But the level of chaos and the lack of real value that you're getting, $8 a month is a lot of money. I mean, that's, like a, significant. that's, that's like, like a Disney Plus subscription That's like a, Exactly. That's like $100 yeah. a year. Yeah. I mean, that's not nothing, especially right. in this economic environment when people are stretched really thin. And I've seen him like very, you know, sort of... Um, casual or hand-waving away the mm -hmm. price of this. I mean, that's a significant amount for a, a lot of people that I don't think can just be hand-waved away. It's the thing with it, too, is, like, it's not even really clear what you're getting. Yeah. There's, like, contradictory information about what it's going to be, what it's going to mean, how it's going to be treated. There's indications that it's going to, you know, help you in terms of having your tweet shown or showing up in the replies, which again, takes away from the idea that it should be a neutral platform, which is one of the other, you know, more beautiful or more appealing parts of Twitter is that you can have someone who's a mega celebrity, uh, you know, a Bill Gates or an Elon Musk or whatever, and that just random X person can potentially get seen in the replies, can mm. potentially interact with those people on that platform. So you're possibly undercutting that. It's going to take a hell of a lot of people paying eight bucks a month to make up for the advertiser revenue that you lost. And ultimately, you know, with regard to the blue check, like the blue check did end up being this sort of like, you know, weird, class like class. It was weird. It, yeah. yeah, the blue check system was not implemented well. In reality, there should have been a lot more blue checks yep. where people's identities are verified. That would have actually contributed to a better um, ecosystem on the platform but that's not profitable. That's not monetizing what you have there. So that's why they're moving in the opposite direction. So not, not a good move. Let me put it this way, which is that verification for pay is not a bad scheme. It's just that it shouldn't be all verification. So I actually saw an interesting uh, graphic that some people are floating with different types of blue checks, right? So you have like the journalist check, then you mm -hmm. have like the paid check, then you have like a government official. It's like a tiered, like a different color mm -hmm. check mark. And I was like, oh, that's actually not a bad idea. The point is, is that if you actually wanna increase the reliability of information on the platform, making it so that you have to second guess whether or not it's actually the person who's tweeting is actually very bad. And yes. so once again, I mean, I'll just get to like, what's the value? The value is the ability for a hyper group of 0.1% users in order to reach basically 99.9. It use, turns out that doing it via ads is not that great, but doing it by uh, being able to access the following on the platform, that's worth something to some people. So look, if anything, like I said in the beginning, he has shown a proven ability to be nimble. Personally, I think this is gonna flop. I do not think it's gonna make a lot of money. It's a because disaster. if it only make, as you said, they have 5 billion in revenue, 89% in 2021. So that means that if we have a massive cut of advertisers, let's call it one or 2 billion, you need to sell hundreds of thousands of subscriptions at $8 a month in order to make that up. Disney is able to do that because they have a hundred years of Disney's IP catalog. Netflix is able to do that basically because they were first to market. Ask Paramount Plus and Peacock how they're ask, doing. Yeah, ask yeah, CNN like, Plus for real. Their like, subscription a month. How did all that work out? Down. So this shit is hard. Yeah, and, you know, like we're a small business, so we don't have to reach that level of scale. But if you are a multi-billion-dollar company, like that's a whole other ballgame. Yeah, the amount of subscriptions that you need to. Sell. And again, to my point about how the information about this has been contradictory, Elon himself spoke a little bit about what the new blue check is ultimately going to mean in terms of how your content is viewed on the platform. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. The, the net effect will be over time that the, the verified users will be, will, will 
pretty much always be at the top of, of comments and search. And you won't really see, you'll have to scroll far to see the unverified uh, users. So you have to scroll far to see the unverified users. So, I mean, listen, if Elon makes it so that the only way your tweets and your replies get seen, yeah, that makes it a see, clear yeah, value add yep. for people. Yep. But that's in direct opposition to your stated free speech goals of the platform. Yeah. And to me, that really just underscores the fact that you can either have your free speech values-driven play or you can have a profit-making play. And the two things cannot really coexist. And it's, you know, obviously really clear what direction he's going to go in. He's going to go in the business direction, just like all of these platforms ultimately make the justifications and make the decisions that they have to to try to make their thing profitable. Maybe I'm crazy, but if you instituted kind of what I've talked about, an enterprise tiered follow type system for access, but a level playing field in Wikipedia, I actually wonder if people might pay. If you're like, hey, listen, we have a commitment here. We could make money by doing all this album, but we're not, you know, go ahead and pay X amount a month. I'm not so sure that I wouldn't pay for that uh, in order to support the goal. We find that in the overwhelming amount of subscriptions that we sell for our premium subscriptions. So look, I don't know. I, I think if you throw it to people and you're like, hey, do you like the idea of having a business that's not at the whims of censorship and you can have even tiered levels of subscription? Like it's very possible that's it actually, could work. That's actually a very interesting yeah. insight of what people might be willing to play for. Yeah. To pay for is like, oh, I actually am invested in this project and this is like value driven. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that he's a billionaire and the fact that, you know, as a profit maker, like, it is a little bit more complicated than us as sure, a new sure, media sure. startup and people feeling like, I want to mm -hmm. build this thing from scratch. But I do think you'd probably have a better pitch if it was value driven and you could see really clearly the way that they're leaving dollars on the table to stay true to the values. But then, you know, how are your big bank lenders going to feel about that yep. play? Yeah, well, that's uh, all the perils of big business. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, some big developments, actually, in terms of uh, Ukraine. Let's go ahead and put this first piece up on the screen. This is from the Washington Post. They say they have a scoop that the Biden administration is actually privately encouraging Ukraine's leaders to signal an openness to negotiate with Russia and drop their public refusal, refusal to engage in peace talks unless Putin is removed from power. I mean, you guys might recall the trajectory of this early in the war. Zelensky was much more open, sort of floating negotiations, even floating some of what they might be willing to compromise on. And then, you know, frankly, understandably, given the level of atrocities and the level of uh, conflict and death and attacks on infrastructure and all of those sorts of things, he's really closed the door and said, absolutely not. Not as long as Putin is in power. And also, by the way, we want to not just, you know, retake the parts of Ukraine that were really firmly in our control before this invasion, but we want Crimea back. We want the entire East back. And so his position is really hardened. There were no indications that the Biden administration was pushing them to sort of soften that even rhetoric whatsoever, even as, you know, ultimately this is an incredibly dangerous situation as we've laid out a million times here at this point. If it's going to end, there's going to have to be some sort of ceasefire negotiation. There's going to have to be some sort of diplomacy. Uh, it also comes on the heels, of course, of the fated letter, <laughs> the ill-fated, I guess, letter from the Progressive Caucus where they, in the mildest possible language, mm -hmm. floated that maybe, possibly, at some point, with the consent of the Ukrainians, considering diplomacy would be a good idea. 
total freak out online about how this was horrible and you're stabbing Ukraine in the back and you're a Putin apologist and you're aligned with the Kremlin and all of this, they immediately retract it. Well, now it turns out that their letter is actually literally just what the Biden administration policy already appears to be. Yeah, I think that's uh, very well said. Also, with the breaking news, actually, Crystal, that these White House officials were having some undisclosed talks with Putin. That almost, frankly, might be the most significant. Let's put this up there on the screen. Jake Sullivan actually has been having these confidential discussions with Russian counterpart, uh, counterparts. Now, according to them, it has not been over Ukraine. It's been over nuclear threats about escalation. But this is an incredibly welcome development yeah. because what is something that we kept underscoring during the whole nuclear, we're like, we need to talk. The whole lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis was have the hotline so that we never have a, this level of confusion ever again. And all the leaks that were coming out in some of the hottest rhetoric during the nuclear threats from the Russians was that there's no bilateral dialogue. So it seems that the, I think clearly the dam broke in the Biden administration. They're looking down at a possible GOP victory in the House where Kevin McCarthy has already said, we're not gonna pass nearly the amount of same of Ukraine aid. It's not a guarantee that they pass the 60 billion extra in Ukraine aid that they want to in the lame duck. So yeah. they're like, well, our hands are going to be very different in the next couple of months. At the same time, the Ukrainians are reaching the limits possibly of their battlefield victory. I said possibly, you know, they've had stunning victories. We don't know. We have nuclear threats. The American public is afraid. Inflation is sky high across here in Europe. And, you know, it's not like the situation in Kyiv is all that great. We're gonna talk about it in a little bit. So now is the time. And what we were saying is that by giving the Ukrainians basically a blank check and saying, you can prosecute this till the end of time, even if whenever it comes to hurt our own core strategic interests, that's always been my objection. Yeah. And so to see them engaging in talks, possibly behind the scenes, nudging them in the, in the right way, I think that's great. Will Zelensky listen? Honestly, I don't think so. Well, I don't think he, I don't think he will listen. The, the Ukrainian population, or at least the one in the the ones in the West, they're not there right now. And Zelensky, I'm gonna say it's kind because I think he's done good for his own people. But like his bravado and the way he talks with the West, and really the level of which he admonishes anyone who doesn't want to give him anything that he wants here in the West and all that, like what is what is the evidence that he actually will listen to any of these private admonishments well, from the, the Biden administration? Well, the question is how hard how hardball are right, the exactly. Biden people willing to pay, right. play? Are you willing to say, you know, next time you come calling for your next, you know, multi 10 billions of dollars handout to not just for the weapons aid, but for economic aid to fund your government, to be able to continue Ukraine as like a going concern, which they're really reliant on our aid in order to do any of that. You know, the answer might be different if you don't change the way that you're even publicly speaking about the possibility of negotiations. Mm -hmm. I personally have no doubt that if the Biden administration was willing to play that kind of hardball, you would hear a softening of tone because his fate and the fate of the country is so tied to what we here are ultimately willing to do. But, you know, I don't know if the Biden administration is really willing to go that hard. Right. You know, there are a few things that I think about here that could have kind of led the Biden administration to a bit of like, you know, a, a different, certainly a different approach than what we were hearing in the early days of like, 
we don't want uh, negotiations and dispatching Boris Johnson probably to go and tell Zelensky, like, no, we don't want diplomacy. We don't want an end to this war. We want to weaken Russia. Basically out and out saying that our goal in this whole thing is to overthrow Putin and have regime change in Russia. This is a very different stance and tone than what we saw in those early days from Biden himself and also from Lloyd Austin um, and other high-level uh, officials. You think about the, the call that was reported with Biden and Zelensky, where Biden's very frustrated and reportedly basically like lost his temper and yelled at Zelensky mm -hmm. over the fact that we're giving you all this aid and then you immediately turn around and ask for even more, even more, even more. It's never enough and you're basically ungrateful. So look, that may sound petty, but the sort of personality conflicts, especially for a player like Biden, who is not unlike Trump and that he's kind of a gut player on a foreign policy front, that makes a difference. And then I also have to think, you know, the revelations that the Ukrainians were invo involved in that firebombing in Moscow, like you're freelancing, murder, assassinating private citizens in Russia. What the hell are you doing? Even the uh, Crimean bridge explosion, uh, which, you know, uh, the best indications are this was like a truck bomb that, um, you know, the Ukrainians were able to blow up the, the Crimean bridge. This is a legitimate military target. I'm not saying that it's not, but Crimea is a different deal than the rest of Ukraine, and that also was very provocative, very escalatory. And that's when we saw the height of the, you know, the worst rhetoric and the worst possibilities of potential uh, nuclear, you know, uh, nuclear tactical nuclear weapon use. So I I feel like, and the other piece that I would add to this too is, you know, there are a lot of indications that we actually have had very little insight into what the Ukrainians are planning, how they're prosecuting the war, that we had more intel about what the Russians were planning to do than what our own allies, the Ukrainians, were willing to do. I have to think all of this has led to the Biden administration saying, you know what, we need to make a bit of a pivot. You're absolutely correct. And also, poll came out, ABC News, Washington Post poll, 50-something percent of GOP voters now say we're giving too much aid to Ukraine. That number was six back in March. So consider that, a complete flip in the way that GOP voters are considering it, and those people are now going to be in power. So I think that that more than anything also could impact the way that they, I mean, they're not stupid. They have to look at unified government is going away, which means that you're going to have to make very, very different choices whenever you're reliant on a very compliant Congress. Well, and it's, it also, I mean, in the sense, I know Biden wants Democrats to hold on to control of the House and the Senate, but it actually gives him a bit of a, a, a point of leverage oh, with absolutely. Zelensky. Right. Whether the Republicans are ultimately full of shit, which they probably are oh, or I, not, I are, yeah. you can, hey, the incoming likely Speaker of the House says he's done. Mm -hmm. And look at this poll. The, my population is shifting, so you're going to have to work with me here. Otherwise, you can't count on this, you know, just continued, consistent shipment of weapons and aid. So I, that has probably strengthened his hand in some of these negotiations. The other piece that we wanted to bring you is, you know, I mean, the situation throughout Ukraine and not just in the eastern, um, you know, other other regions is, is quite uh, quite dire and quite frightening for the residents there. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. Kyiv is actually planning for a potential total evacuation if they lose electricity. The city is also establishing a thousand heating centers for its three million residents as Russia pounds away at civilian targets. They say they're struggling to maintain an electricity grid that's been heavily damaged by Russian miss missiles. Um, they've started planning for what they describe as a once unthinkable possibility, a complete blackout that would require the evacuation 
evacuation of the city's 3 million remaining residents. The situation is already uh, quite bad. They have 40% of Ukraine's energy infrastructure damaged or destroyed. Municipal workers are setting up heating shelters, but they lack a lot of the needed equipment at this point. And to try to keep the grid from falling altogether, Ukraine's national energy utility said on Saturday it would continue to impose rolling blackouts in seven regions. And y'all, it is getting cold in Ukraine, and it is only set to get colder. Yeah, I mean, look, right now, when we're recording this, it's 44 degrees. Uh, it's the low is 39. That's actually a little bit warm um, from what I've read. As we said, in general, the average temperature does not go above the 30s from November 15th until March. So they have four straight months of cold. Zelensky was actually warning just this morning, Crystal, uh, this is the major news, which is he says the power outages have no sign. He keeps warning that major infrastructure attacks on Kyiv are going to continue. So I think this evacuation plan is not a joke. I think that the Russians are waiting for exactly the right time to strike. And look, this actually fits very much in what they are capable of. They have terrible battlefield advance. Their troops are mostly conscripts. They don't have the ability to launch a full-scale like combined arms offensive. So what do you do? You have superior technology, and you use the hell out of it against the enemy's center of gravity, yeah. which is the capital where they run everything, a symbol of Ukrainian resistance. And to have to evacuate your capital city in the middle of a war would be a massive emotional blow. Like, oh, there's, there's no getting around. Right? Absolutely. There's no getting around. And, I mean, these are designed to uh, undercut the will to continue fighting. And we actually saw we saw a poll that um, I, we didn't actually end up showing it on the on the program. Oh, right. We, of we Ukraine. should yeah. of Ukrainians and by region, you know what they want. Are they in it like no matter what? And we're going to yep. take all the territory back. And in the eastern part, in places like Kiev, that is very much overwhelmingly the sentiment. The places that have been at war and have been living with this for years at this point, there's a much more complex picture there. And so the the gamble from Moscow is basically like, and they don't have a lot of great um, hands to play at this point, is like, we're going to wear down this population so that they're willing to come to the table and open to some sort of an you know, end to this war. That's what they want to do is to undercut the will to fight. Will it work? I don't know. But it's not crazy to think that when people are facing you know, elderly people, facing a long winter freezing, that you become willing to accept things that maybe you know, when things were going better, you weren't willing willing to accept. We'll see. I mean, it's a time-honored tradition now of total war. You have to go after, you know, the enemy's civilian infrastructure. It's something that's certainly going to happen. Um, and whether it will break the Ukrainian will or not, I, do, I don't think it necessarily will, but it will inflict chaos on the life of millions. And yeah, like, that's where no I doubt about have it. to focus. There's kids, you know, people, old people die whenever you have power outages, you have hospitals. I see, you know, all these things just go blank and a lot, a lot of people um, will die as a result of this, yeah. which is just really sad. Horrific. Okay. Um, all right, last little piece we wanted to bring you here before we get to our <laughs> monologue. So there's already a lot of finger pointing going on in cable news. Yes. Who's to blame? What went wrong? And of course, Sagar. Yes. The Democrats can never fail. They no. can only be failed, yes. right? right? And so uh, Joy Reid over on MSNBC, MSNBC had an interesting explanation of what exactly has gone wrong in this election cycle. Take a listen. The people I ever heard hear use the word inflation are journalists um, and economists, right? So that is not part of the normal lexicon 
of the way people talk. So it's interesting that Republicans are doing something they don't normally do, right? Which is not use the, com the common tongue, right? Not use just common English to sort of use do on their campaigns like they're doing with crime. But what they've done is they've taught people the word inflation, right? Yeah. Most people who would have never used that word ever in their lives are using it now because they've been taught it, including on TV, including in newspapers. They've been taught this word, and they, they sort of wrap this word around whatever it is that they really want to vote. Mm -hmm. Okay. Smart, yes. People who... <laughs> people uh, had no idea what inflation was before the Republicans started. So the boomers who lived through the 1970s have never heard the name inflation. The Gen Xers who also were in the 1970s never heard their parents use the word inflation. I wasn't even born in a time of high inflation, and I know what the name inflation is. So I think people know what the hell is going... Well, it's just, I see this stuff all the time. Yes. Stacey Abrams says that she might lose because of misinformation amongst black men. That's it? Misinformation? Maybe you suck. I mean, it's just like, why is it always the fault of the voters for misusing or mislearning the term inflation? It's a technical term. You don't have to like well, it. You can contest it if you would like. Yeah. Like, well, this fits with, um, there's yeah. been a whole narrative in, you know, on the Twitters right. and in the in the ecosystem, the media ecosystem of like, the media is being too hard on Democrats mm -hmm. and the economy. The economy is actually great. And this is like, you know, this is hurting Democrats, that you're portraying the economic situation is much worse than it actually is. And look, I don't deny the economy. It's kind of a weird situation because you do have continued low unemployment. But I think it is the height of condescension and contempt to think that people don't know what's going on in their own lives. And when they tell you they're struggling, like they mean it. It's not because Republicans had a talking point or the media or whatever they are able to experience that for themselves. And so, you know, I guess this is, um, I certainly have been making the case, Bernie Sanders has been making the case, there are a few voices out there that are saying like, hey, maybe y'all should have talked about the economy. This is a way to acknowledge that the economic concerns ended up being a big issue, but also to never cast any blame yeah. on, with the Democrats for failing to offer any affirmative um, any ex explanation for why this was happening, any affirmative program that would help people. Instead, it's like, oh, just the Republican media machine taught people the word inflation, and that's why it's we're like, losing. No, they didn't. That's, again, <laughs> no, it's not. Or maybe people are like, hey, oh, I, I would just, I love the idea of somebody being like, my groceries are more expensive. What's the name for that? And somebody's like, inflation. They're like, no, no, that's a Republican term. It's right. like, no, it's like, it's just more expensive. It is a technical increase in price relative to time. That's it. Um, that's all we have to consider it as. Whether it matters and what's the cause, that, listen, there's a real debate around that one. That's mm -hmm. fun, which we spend a lot of time talking about here on the show. But to deny that it's happening, just totally ridiculous. I mean, again, the same thing. Oh, misinformation is the reason why black men are, you know, moving to Republicans and Latino men actually in historic degree. I think one of the major, if I have to predict one of our major segments we're going to do on our show is going to be uh, black and Latino men moving in historic degrees to Republicans. There's a, been a real gender polarization yes. over the last couple of months and Probably actually years. Probably fueled by Roe in part. Which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah you're right. But possibly, I don't know though, because it predates it. Maybe it accelerated. We'll yeah, see. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. the potential, I, it was already Yeah, it was widening. trending. But I do think that Roe helped to accelerate it. But yeah, the, the problem for Democrats isn't that people learned what inflation Correct. was. Yes. It's that the economic reality is not good okay. and Democrats haven't done a good job explaining what they would do differently.
All right, Tiger, what are you looking at? Well, as soon as next week, they say Trump may launch his next bid for the presidency, upending our politics and the current dynamic that I'm about to speak about. But it's important, this moment in time is never memory hold, because perhaps the day may come in November 2024 or in 2028, but Trump eventually will be gone from our lives. The people who he saved last time around will have to confront once again what their lives really did look like without him. <laughs> this week is kind of perfect. Last week without Trump to consider the state of our news business. In the span of 72 hours, three of the major networks announced major cuts across the board, revealing how pathetic their underlying business and viewership really is. Each of these instances in their own right tells us a lot about how much our culture and population has changed and how little trust that these major networks retain. Let's start with Shepard Smith. I gotta say this, I got nothing against the man. He was actually good at Fox News, only at breaking news. But when he dramatically left the network in 2019, it was considered a major shock. He effectively anchored the breaking news credibility of the Fox News brand. Smith was paid some $20 million a year, considered an essential person with a lot of credibility. And then something interesting happened. He was picked up by CNBC under the presumption he has a ton of credibility. He'll add a lot to the brand. He debuted a primetime show in September 2020. And what happened? Absolutely nobody cared. It turned out Smith wasn't nearly as powerful as people thought he was. He didn't really have an audience. He was just good at narrating a car chase or whatever to do in the event of a hurricane. His low-rated show flopped from the beginning, becoming effectively irrelevant in the two years that it was on the air. Even when it was canceled, the only thing noteworthy about it was that it was finally canceled. So why is that important? Because it shows that the so-called stars really aren't stars at all. Their high paychecks more reflect insane market dynamics of a dying business that are, than they are any worth to actually bringing real people's lives. Next on the list is a funny one too, Tiffany Cross, straight up canceled on MSNBC. Cross, too, was a great example of the dying cable news business. Cross is just a racial shock jock in the mold of Joy Reid, just not as good at it. She says incendiary things about how awful and racist America is. She gets paid big bucks to do it. She hosted a Saturday show called Cross Talk, actually on cable, but more importantly, she hosted an online show on Peacock TV. Now, most of you know Peacock for The Office or for Yellowstone, but don't forget, NBC also was trying to figure out how to make streaming news work on their platform. They hired Mehdi Hassan and Cross in a bid to compete with shows like ours and appeal to younger people. They cross-promote their online shows on the major news channel in the hopes that people will come over. But guess what? It didn't work out, did it? NBC has never released the numbers for Peacock shows, but considering that Cross left and no one really cares, even Hassan's show, of course, is irrelevant, as is the former White House aide, Simone Sanders. Their bid to compete in news streaming is a failure. Cross was a great reflection of that. They're discovering that when people have actual choice, like what they do not have on cable, then their real feelings about their lack of credibility really comes out when they don't watch. And finally, my personal favorite, CNN. First was Jake Tapper, the so-called rock of CNN. I'll say this, I guess he's better than the rest of them, but he's a lot like Shep Smith. He's good at the news. At actually getting people to want to watch, turns out, not so much. Tapper flopped in the brief experiment with primetime, drawing only 450,000 viewers in total, a fraction of that in the key demographic. Even people in the cable news business who are used to having only old people watch described it as, quote, abysmal. 
The network claimed that he would have returned to daytime as always planned after the midterms, which is laughable. They hailed his placement there as a big move for the brand, which was all about the news and had all the intentions of making it permanent. They only backtracked after they realized how awful the numbers were. Then, of course, Don Lemon. Trump once aptly named him as the dumbest man on television, and he is fulfilling his promise in the debut of his new morning show. The numbers on this one are so low, it is difficult to believe. As Puck News' Dylan Byers writes, quote, the inaugural episode drew 387,000 total viewers, 71,000 in the 25 to 50 year old demographic, numbers that are significantly lower than the last incarnation of CNN's New Day. Media executives described it to me by turn as, quote, brutal, humiliating, an abject disaster. All of that comes on the heels of bad news for CNN, whose new parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, has $60 billion in debt. And now they have to cut 10% of their entire budget at CNN with $100 million required in savings just this year. Hundreds will be fired. Many anchors and talent could lose their job. I don't cheer any layperson losing their job. But when Don Lemon's show eventually does get canceled, I will be the first one laughing. Again, I'm doing this as an important reminder. Without Trump, these people are dead men walking. They will get their boost again. The boomers will come back, let's be clear. But by the way, also don't think, I'm not sparing Fox. They too are just as pathetic in their ratings in the key demographic. Their numbers may be higher overall than CNN or MSNBC, but their reliance on older viewers is somewhat even more of an existential threat. Their boomers too will come back for Trump. And that squares the circle. All of these networks got a huge lifeline in the time of Donald Trump. But the best he was was a Band-Aid that could stop the bleeding. The writing was on the wall in 2015. Today, it is even bolder than then. Put this monologue in a time capsule. Remember it. Over the next few years, you're going to see a lot of people in the industry crowing about how the people who predicted their demise came too early. In the reality, it all rests upon a figure who's now much bigger than all of them, Trump. And when he eventually leaves, the bill for their obsession with him and the sacrifice of their credibility will truly come due. And I'll be laughing, and probably in the interim few years too, because the end of cable is just a cause too great to be celebrated. And listen, I mean, it's actually very- And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys, as you know, the midterms are tomorrow. You know what that means. We are two days from the official start of the 2024 presidential election. Right now, it looks pretty likely we're going to get the rematch that absolutely no one asked for, Trump versus Biden, the sequel. It's one of the clearest signs of our societal and democratic decline that two men with negative approval ratings that a majority of the country says really clearly that they do not want, those two dudes very likely to be the major party standard bearers. But while that outcome is likely, it's far from predetermined. We already covered Trump preparing to announce shortly after the midterms, taking shots at likely rival DeSantis. There's some things going on on the Democratic side of the ledger, too, though, that might cause one to question whether Biden is, in fact, going to end up being the Democratic pick once again. So first of all, dude hasn't been doing so well in the public eye lately. As we covered last week in a recent appearance, Biden misidentified the war that we're currently involved in and then seconds later misstated how his own son died again. Take a look at that. And they talk about inflation. You know, we're dealing with it for a whole second. Inflation is a worldwide problem right now because of a war in Iraq and the impact on oil and what Russia's doing. I mean, excuse me, the war in, in Ukraine. And uh, think of Iraq because that's where my son died. The, uh, because he died. 
Even more noteworthy than yet another Biden stumble, however, was the fact that the New York Times, which is basically a mouthpiece for elite opinion, actually covered those stumbles. One of their most prominent reporters, Chief White House correspondent Peter Baker, he wrote a piece highlighting those brain malfunctions. This came at the same time that George Will, a conservative establishment fixture for decades, wrote a scathing column begging Democrats not to stick with Biden or his failed vice president, Kamala Harris. Will wrote in that column, regarding Biden and Harris, the National Democratic Party faces two tests of stewardship. It's imprimatur cannot again be bestowed on either one of them. Biden has not just passed his prime, even adequacy is in his past, and this is Harris's prime. Ouch. Now, there is one more to add to this list of elite critiques of Biden. Reuters has a reported piece out asking whether major midterm losses are going to lead to Democrats pulling the plug on the current president. The article begins quite provocatively. They write, the U.S. midterm elections on Tuesday will do much more than shape the next two years of Joe Biden's presidency. They'll help determine whether he will run in 2024 as well, political analysts and advisors believe. They then go on to report on the efforts of a few blue state governors to position themselves with the possibility Biden decides not to run after all, namely California's Gavin Newsom, Illinois' J.B. Pritzker, and apparently New Jersey's Phil Murphy. Okay. They also have a bunch of quotes from named and anonymous analysts questioning whether Biden is really the party's best choice for the future. Now, these articles are only interesting in that they give us a little glimpse into a Washington insider game of jockeying and of leaking. Basically, what these articles all signal is that the party donors and elites do not want Biden to be the nominee again. Now, these types are frankly always kind of underestimated Biden. They look down on him for his lack of educational pedigree and for a political style that leans into retail and gut instinct over the overly intellectual stylistic approach of, say, an Obama or a Pete. Ironically, they actually look down on Biden for some of his more compelling characteristics rather than any of the actual policy issues with him. But this set of party elites would prefer the Silicon Valley-connected Gavin Newsom or their real wet dream, the McKinsey-credentialed Pete Buttigieg. Now, this whole dynamic of elites unsure of Biden, it does have a bit of a deja vu quality to it. In the run-up to the 2020 Dem primary, there were similar questions about Biden's fitness and capability to lead the party into the modern era. Typically, a former vice president would be seen as a clear heir apparent, would more or less be able to clear the nominating field. Instead, Biden's perceived weakness led to a record-breaking number of candidates, everyone from outsiders to insiders to ladder climbers to people we had never heard of and really haven't heard from since. It's easy to forget now, but the time you were even allowed to question whether Biden's age had caught up with him. Remember this? He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would they not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? But ultimately, when it came down to it, political donor and media elites underestimated Biden and wildly overestimated the bench that they had imagined to be stacked with talent and with appeal. As their would-be replacements were rejected one by one by one by the American public, they were finally at the last minute faced with the reality that their only chance to keep Bernie from being the nominee was to go all in for Biden. As Biden's own wife once put it, to suck it up and vote Joe. Now, if I had to guess, I'd say we're going to see a similar process play out. If the midterms result in the red wave that looks pretty likely at this point, expect a whole lot more articles like this. CNN, CNN and MSNBC, they're going to lift their moratorium on discussing Biden's mental acuity. Leaks are going to fly. Anonymous Dem consultants will savage Biden. Aides to Pete Newsom and others are going to plant lots of negative Biden stories. Polls will flood the field, revealing once again that Democrats would love to nominate someone other than Joe Biden. 
And then eventually, reality will set in once again for these elites. Reality that the elected Dem bench is even less popular than Biden. Reality that as adult as Biden may be, he didn't spend all his life chasing the brass ring just to give it up because some donor types are thirsting after Mayor Pete. Reality that even in their fantasy world, where Biden willingly steps aside, Dems then have to grapple with the fact that they can't just push aside the first black female vice president for a cast of governor white guys without facing a wave of shrieking about racism and sexism. Just like last time, almost instantaneously, the media will shift from questioning Biden to uncritical flattery. They'll close ranks hard and try to snuff out any outsiders who consider challenging Biden in the primary without the party blessing. But even after elites circle the wagons, one problem for Biden will still remain. And that's the hard fact that the Democratic base desperately wants other options. And that base after having seen the weakness of Biden's electability argument with a midterm shellacking, and after a few more years of mainstream media weakening and alternative media strengthening, they might not be as easily corralled this time around as they were last time. For Biden, the people, not dem elites, are the real threat. Sagar, I saw this morning, Jen Psaki, former white- And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, predictions. All right. Should we lay it all on the table? Oh, let's do it. Okay. Let's right. do it. Let's, let's go. Do all right, let's go one by one. All right. All right, so first of all, the House is going Republican, yes, obviously. Yes, absolutely. Do you have any guess of the margin? I'm going to say R plus 25. Yeah. Uh, that seemed, I'm, by the way, I'm shamelessly stealing that from the uh, Coke Political well, that was, and also, uh, what's it, Kyle Kondik yes. over at Crystal Ball. They yes. both have the same thing. That's, yeah, yeah I was going to say the same thing okay. for the same reason. There you go. They are paying yeah. a lot more attention to those races yeah. than I am, so, and they're a lot smarter on these things, so better to go with experts on that one. All right. Georgia, what do you think? Okay, Georgia, happen? I think Herschel Walker's going to win. Do you think he's going to avoid a runoff? No, I don't think he'll avoid a runoff. Yeah. I think he will win narrowly by like one or two percentage points, and then ultimately he'll probably prevail in the runoff, although it makes it more uncertain. What about you? Agree. Okay. Same. Right. I don't, I think it'll be close. Georgia, the polls have been pretty accurate in uh -huh. Georgia, um, both in 2020 and then in the runoffs. They were, they were pretty on the money. They show a very close race. None of them shows either one of them surpassing 50 percentage points, which is what you have to do to avoid a runoff. So I would also say Walker by a little bit, and but you're going to a runoff. All right. Um, what about Nevada? Nevada, I'm still going to go with Adam Laxalt. Uh, even after John Ralston's predictions, after seeing my friend's corollary on Ralston's own numbers and doing some of the analysis, I think Laxalt will pull it out by maybe one point or something like that. It is yeah. very tight, though, and this is why it's difficult to make these type of I'll stand with Ralston just yeah. because he has such a good track record here. And my instinct would have been Laxalt, mm -hmm. but because he is so steeped in the numbers and has such a good track record, I'll say that Catherine Cortez Masto holds on there. Okay, next. Okay, what about, um, I'll say Pennsylvania for last. What okay. about Arizona, Mark Kelly versus Blake Masters? I think Masters pulls it out by a couple. I'll tell you why. The gubernatorial numbers are just too good. Carrie Lake is nuking Katie Hobbs. Yeah, so even, even if you have some split ticket, uh, this is actually, I may surprise people in Pennsylvania um, in terms of my analysis, but the gubernatorial, I think, really matters in the Arizona context. Whenever you have split ticket voting, it's not something that you can bank on. Carrie Lake winning that race by like 10 points right now. And I think that Carrie's popularity will bleed over onto Masters instead of vice versa. This is the one I'm probably... Well, actually, I'm I'm not that sure of any yeah. of them, but I'm, oh, I'm, I'm not sure say, of any of these. I'm not. Yeah. I'm going to say Mark Kelly holds on um, because he. The thing that persuaded me there is that you had voters saying cultural issues were more important than in other states. He has a longstanding, predating him being a senator profile in the state, 
and you know very like positive feelings about him. Masters has run just an abysmal campaign. Uh, Arizona is a place where you know some of the demographic trends are more in Democrats' favor. It's also a place where the polling has also tended to be more accurate. So I'm going to say Mark Kelly holds on in Arizona. Um, let's go to New Hampshire. What do you think about New Hampshire? Okay, New Hampshire. That's it's tough. I don't it's know. a tough one. I'm just going to say Brian Baldock. I'm I'm be I'm betting on the red wave. You're going, so I'm just okay. going to go with it. Yeah, that's my my analysis is is that red wave. Listen, I mean, okay, that region. What do we know about it? Big polling misses in the last contest. Susan Collins in Maine, not the same state. I'm aware, New Hampshireites. That being said, the poll was missed by 10 points. And that was in 2020, much more favorable environment. Haston is a much weaker candidate. Bullduck might be kind of crazy. The fundamentals are all going in the GOP direction. Major tightening, no election or no uh, early vote in the state. I think it's just, just uh, I, I think, again, given the way that the trends are going, the poll under, also, there's actually not been all that many high quality polls out of New Hampshire yeah. until very recently. So that was another reason. You know what actually kind of, fl I, yeah. I actually was thinking New Hampshire Republicans would take it until I saw that Trafalgar only had Balduck by one. Mm. And then I was like, mm, if Trafalgar's only got you winning by one, that's pretty close to where the Democratic polls are. The Democratic polls have Hassan by like a couple of points, mm -hmm. or not the Democratic, the mainstream polls have Hassan by um, a couple of points. I'm going to say she holds on there as well. Uh, let's do, I think we both agree, Ohio, J.D. Vance is yeah, going to win. It's not going to be particularly no close. Yeah. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, Ron Johnson is going to hang on there, not particularly close. North Carolina is another one that sort of is in that realm. Same thing, I think mm -hmm. the Republican holds on yeah. and wins there. Not, not a difficult one. All right, how about Pennsylvania? I'm gonna go with Oz, Mehmet the Conqueror. Uh, I just, I don't, I think, given the debate, the early vote numbers were very high, but there's not a lot that people could make of that. We generally see, I think, with the enthusiasm, Republican, uh, sorry, what was it? it? Biden approval rating is so low in yeah. the state. The only reason I think Fetterman might pull it out is the strength of Josh Shapiro. So this is yeah, kind of my flipping. Yeah, that's the flip of Arizona. This is true. the flip of Arizona, where Shapiro was up by 10. So to have then a split ticket of Shapiro and Oz doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me. Mastriano, in many ways, might be more responsible for Oz's loss than even Oz himself, because he's such a bad candidate. Yeah. Prevents a split, uh, straight ticket GOP. But I think he's going to pull it out. I mean, one point, to have that margin in a flawed polling environment makes it so that it's very difficult to bet against it. So I don't know. I think it's possible. Listen, that one would actually, ironically, that one would surprise me the least if, if uh, Fetterman You won. could see it going yeah, either way. That one I think is truly 50-50. But look, if I had to bet, I think I'm betting Oz. Uh, I am also going to bet Oz on this one mm -hmm. because um, the polls are extremely close. And at this point, Real Clear Politics has uh, Oz with a 0.1% advantage. And Pennsylvania is a state where we've had big polling misses in, in favor of the Republicans. Exactly. So when I look at a jump ball in terms of the polls and I think about past history, I have mm -hmm. to think that that's understating Republican support probably in the western part of the state, more like white working class areas. So, um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that Oz pulls that one. Pulls out the victory there. There you go. That's our uh, our fun thing. I will remind people, GOP people don't like to. I called every state in the 2020 election. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, that. you did. Yeah, I yeah, got you the nailed entire it. electoral college. And now, of course, the Republicans are like, no, because the election was rigged. But listen, you know, I, I think I I have that's my only time I've ever done this. So it, it was uh, Yeah, so you got it, a, you got a good I track have a hundred percent track record. <laughs> I'm joking. Right. I don't know anything. I know just as much as all of you and as you. I think it could go easily that way. It, it could go my way. I think it could go. <laughs> 
you know, and why, why I love these things is the probabilities, which is that I think there's a 10% chance the Republicans win like 55 seats, and I think there's a 10% chance that they lose every single one of these uh, every single one of these uh, things. Somewhere it's going to be in the middle. That's kind of how probability works. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I do continue to think that they'll all fall in one direction, which honestly kind of argues against all of the picks that I just made, <laughs> with the one exception being yeah. that um, Nevada, I do think, is a little bit, is structurally a little bit different than the rest of the country. So I can imagine a scenario where Democrats hold there, even as they lose, like, everywhere else. Um, I, the one I feel probably the most confident about is just, like, Georgia going to a runoff. Yeah. I could see either Walker or Warnock coming on top there. I think probably Walker at this point, but I could see it going either way. But I have a hard time imagining either one of them getting over 50%. The fun thing on Georgia is we're actually going to know that relatively soon. Or at least we'll we'll get some great indications because the poll close there is like 7. 7, so yeah. So right when we're on the air, we're going to start getting initial numbers. And I think within an hour, we'll have a very good idea of, like, where and, things and are headed. We should also, you know, we really, before, the 2020 elections, we really went on in deep on like, okay, here's the results that are going to come right. in first. The, the mail-in ballots are going to come in, and then yep. this is going to the day of and whatever. So um, we didn't go as in-depth on that. But just also keep in mind that uh, the mode of voting has become fairly partisan. Mm -hmm. Democrats much more likely to vote early. Republicans much more likely to vote on election day. So just keep in mind as these results are coming in, you may see big shifts where there's nothing nefarious. It's just basically because Trump said that mail-in voting is fake, exactly. that you have this partisan divide on how people vote. And so that may lead to some strange dynamics on election night, which is just something to keep in mind for all of us as we're watching these results ultimately come in. But yeah, I'm psyched. It's going to be fun. We're going to have the whole extended family in the house watching this thing live. And as you can tell, I mean, it really is really is hard to say on the Senate in particular what direction all of these are going to fall. Gonna be I love Election Day. You find it's out a lot about America. Uh, a lot. Some, it's one of the only times the media gets real-time checked. All of us. It's a That's very true. humbling experience. I love the hell out of it, um, and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to cover with all of you. So yeah. I hope you guys join us. 7 p.m. We'll be up here on the desk as, uh, as long as it is. And then in the morning, Wednesday, we'll have a show for them. Uh, for you all as well. So yeah. I think that you guys are going to have too much analysis. To deal so you get to pick <laughs> You're and flood choose. the zone. It's a flow. Yeah, exactly. We're going to flood the zone. It's a pick your own adventure for whatever you want to hear. And when we uh, look forward to seeing all of you with Kyle and Marshall and Emily and Ryan. So also our people on the ground. Seriously, I want to thank the premiums so much. You know, it's in these times that we 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 just we think about how they have enabled us to give like a real production, to have real people on the ground yeah. to pay for that, those interviews. I mean, that is the most expensive part of the news gathering operation. And it's solely because of your support. So if you like it, and by the way, we're heading into 2023, you can sign up. There'll be a link down in the description. Otherwise, we'll see you all tomorrow, 7 p.m. Love y'all. See you soon. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.